today on CityCast Denver. Ever since the summer of 2020, police reform has crept forward slowly, inch by hard-fought inch. But still, there are too many stories like the one that played out down the road from Denver in June in Silver Plume. A young man named Christian Glass called 911 looking for help, and that call escalated into a violent confrontation that ended in his own death. So what exactly happened that night on the side of the road in Clear Creek County? And what does it say about the state of police reform in Colorado? The officers realized that the public wanted something different. I mean, you can talk pretty openly to any police chief or sheriff about it. And they're like, yeah, we get it. Like, people wanted a change. And so we're trying to change. Now, do they all love it? I, would, I wouldn't go that far. Allison Sherry is a criminal justice reporter with Colorado Public Radio. And she's on the show today to put this tragic story in context. Oh, and just a warning, this episode contains audio from police body camera footage. It may not be suitable for all listeners. Today is Monday, September 19th, 2022. I'm Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. Allison Sherry, welcome to CityCast Denver. Thanks, Bree. Nice to be here. So recently, body camera footage was released of the shooting of Christian Glass by Clear Creek County Police. And I have to say something that stuck with me, Allison, about this situation was this still from the cops footage. And it's an image of Christian Glass, like holding his hands up to his car window in the shape of a heart. How how did we how did he get there? So he, you know, I'll just I'll first just start by talking about who he was, which I, I think is important in these things. I, I don't like to just talk yeah. about people as like victims of, a, of police violence. They were actually people before that, too. He was a 22 year old Boulder resident. He had a roommate. He was a chef and he was dabbling in some geology. He liked to dig out rocks. He had gotten home the day before. Um, from Utah, and he had taken a trip uh, to do some art there because of the desert colors. And then he'd also stopped at a rock store and bought a bunch of tools to do some like geology. He had all these rocks in his car, like a heart-shaped um, kind of a glassy rock. His mom is from the United Kingdom, and his dad is from New Zealand. Um, and that night, he had gone to... Um, I don't know exactly, no one knows exactly where he was coming from, but he was up in Silver Plume. It was late and he had gotten his car stuck um, up in a road. He called 911 for help from his cell phone in his car, saying his car was stuck. He was very polite. He didn't seem threatening to himself or he didn't seem threatening to anyone else. I will say he seemed pretty paranoid. He said a trap was in a bush, a trap had grabbed his car. So he was sounding a little strange. I think the dispatcher picked up on that and had, you know, through course of conversation, asked if he had any weapons. And I only say that because, you know, I was actually talking to my dad about this last night and he was like, do, do they always ask if you have weapons? That seems kind of aggressive. And I was like, well, you know, she was on the phone with him for a while. He didn't he didn't sound 100%. Like he sounded like there was maybe something going on. So and it sounds like to me, like the 911 operator is just trying to assess what kind of situation they might be sending emergency personnel into. Right. And I think it's I think it is actually is, is kind of standard when you're sending someone to a car if they ask if, if they have weapons. And Christian did, in fact, have several knives in the car, as you reported. 
But he was very upfront and said yes. He, he described the weapons and said he'll throw them out of the car as soon as the person gets there. Queen, queen, six, seven, six. And there's going to be a property damage crash. The deputies arrived. Um, you know, he offered again to throw them out of the car. The deputy said, no, I don't, I don't want you to touch the weapons. I want you to get out. He said he didn't feel safe. And, you know, it really escalates from there. Keep your windows down because we're here to help you. How about you step out of the vehicle? Step out, step out of the car. The deputy asks him several times, more than two dozen times, to get out of the car. He says he doesn't want to. Step out of the car now. That's a lawful order. Step out of the car. You'll be removed from the vehicle. Step out now. They say they're going to drag him out of the car. They tell him they're going to break his window. He clearly is scared. He tells them over and over he's scared. He makes that heart sign um, that you mentioned mm -hmm. towards the officers a lot. Um, he does a lot of, he blows kisses to the officers a lot, but he doesn't really get out of the car. Look over here, man. You want some paper? So you can write me what you want? He did offer to throw the knives out. Um, they didn't say yes. Um, he would pick up the knife. When they broke his first window with a baton, he picked up the knife, put it back down. You know, they're yelling at him to drop the knife. Um, so it was kind of like this, they were going back and forth over and over to drop the knife. They tased him. What some of the lawyers and his family have said was the officers escalated the situation and, and they made it less safe for themselves by breaking the windows. Um, you know, if, if the windows would have been rolled up and you have a knife, there's not, would be pretty hard to hurt someone. You could hurt yourself. Right. But there's not, you couldn't like... If the window is rolled up and the door is locked, it's hard to hurt somebody on the outside. Drop the fucking knife! It's in his fucking hand, chief. The, the officers would say he was lunging towards the Georgetown police chief with the knife, and that's what justified the killing. Um, but I, the lawyers would say they created the situation. I mean, he was not escalating it in and of himself. So... There you have the two sides and the legal debate, and we'll see what the DA does on that. And what's what stuck out to me, too, is that this encounter with police lasted for more than an hour. Right. Um, and there were a couple of officers that were trying to to, you know, there was this initial escalation, I think, by the way, the the first officers who responded were talking. But then later on, some other officers joined them that seemed to be trying to de-escalate the situation. I mean, for, for lack of a better word, to use a cliche, some good cop, bad copying going on a little. You know, there were there was definitely the first um, guy, Deputy Andrew Bowen, who was the first to respond was, I would say, pretty verbally aggressive when he got there. Um, and he was the one who ultimately fired the shots as well. In hindsight, you know, you're you're not... I, I'm trying to give some benefit to the doubt for law enforcement because their jobs are hard and it's scary to be in those situations. Um, and and you're, there's also, like, some precedent in law about not doing the sort of 2020 vision, like Monday morning quarterbacking after a really dangerous incident. But I will say, in hindsight... You know, officers are on duty 24-7, so there wasn't like, it wasn't like he was trying to run away. It wasn't like he, 
he was just sitting in his car. So I guess my question would be, is there not a precedent to wait him out to just say, well, you're not going anywhere. Your car is stuck and we've put stop sticks behind it. Um, could we just sit there? Can we just and wait, wait? wait it out? I do want to get into this a little bit into this co-responder um, program situation. So for folks that don't know, the co-responder programs often work in conjunction with police departments. They're staffed by mental health clinicians. They are utilized as interventions um, in emergency situations where it seems to be a mental health situation. Where this happened in Clear Creek didn't have one of these programs, but the neighboring counties had these programs. I mean, I don't I don't want to speculate. We can't really speculate, but this could have been a situation where if they had a co-responder program, that would have been appropriate in this situation. Yeah, you know, some of the co-responder programs operate, and I'm thinking of Denver, you know, which has a very robust one. I'm sure you guys have talked about this on the show, I've heard. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, they, they'll go out instead of law enforcement. And I think some of the data, it's like, you know, it's less than like 10% of the calls where they go out by themselves without any law enforcement that they actually need to call for backup. It's, it's a really small percentage of calls. Once they're out there at a scene that the dispatcher determines is not criminal in nature or doesn't really demand a law enforcement presence, very seldom do they actually feel like they need to call law enforcement in um, and, and this is one of those examples where it seems like you're a, you're a dispatcher. This is a non-injury accident. There's no other cars involved. This guy is on the phone. He's sounding a little strange. He's sounding like he was talking, you know, he's talking about a lot of different things that didn't totally make a lot of sense. But he's also calling for help. He's calling for help. Know? And he's and so it's that, that's like almost like a perfect situation in which a dispatcher might say, you know, you know, I don't know if co-responders could like push a car out out of a ditch or whatever, but they could go up and talk to him and say, like, I'm just going to have I'm just going to send this, you know, our co-responder crew up there just to talk and see what's going on. So uh, this incident uh, happened in June. The body camera footage was just released, which is why there's so much more coming out about this the situation. What do you do you know what the next step is or what will happen next with this case? Yeah, and I'll just clarify that the incident happened in June. The parents um, reached out to these attorneys, I think, pretty shortly afterwards, within the month. And the, the attorneys requested the body cam, which under Colorado's new Senate Bill 217, they have to release really quickly. I mean, it used to just take forever to get body cam. And now there's a lot that has to be released pretty quickly. So they were able to obtain it. It was just released to reporters, which is why okay. you're um, you're kind of seeing and hearing all of the stories. I have to say, it's it's been I've covered a lot of officer and shootings. Um, this is a very slow investigation. This district attorney is definitely taking time. Um, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation was investigating it. She is deciding whether to send the case, and that would be charges against the officer who shot him and or any of the other officers. You know, there's a duty to intervene law in Colorado. So if officers do not intervene in wrongdoing in the moment, they can be charged with a misdemeanor. I know that's what she's weighing right now. She's waiting on the investigation from the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. Um, but it's been some months now, and there hasn't been a lot of public statements from any of the authorities investigating. And so I, the parents are pretty frustrated, and that's why they decided to come out and be, you know, um, open with their frustrations and, and call for justice. You know, they're trying to clear their son's name. 
the press release that went out right afterwards on how this happened um, was pretty incomplete, I will say. This is such a complicated situation. What stands out to you here? I mean, you're someone that's been reporting on this kind of thing for a while. You know, there but for the grace of body cams, because I I don't know how anyone would have known anything different if it wasn't for the fact that we could sit and watch this now, because even the parents said they didn't know what to believe. They they weren't there, you know, they didn't know. They they didn't know what was going on with their son. um, And they... They, they thought it didn't sound like him, but that's the, that's the account that was given the day after. Um, and I think it's just important for transparency, you know, that people can go and look at this. So, Allison, you've covered criminal justice in Colorado for a long time. And I have to say, this case is making national news. Mm-hmm. Do you think that it is something that could lead to bigger changes with law enforcement? The problem with, I mean, yes, I think it could. I think all of these shootings, when they get attention often lead to reform. That has been the history of this since George Floyd's murder. Um, You know, body cam footage comes out, and that's what happened with the summer of 2020, the nation's reckoning with police violence. It led Colorado to be the very first state in the country at that time to pass police reform um, with a pretty big bipartisan support. I mean, there, there were a lot of Republicans who voted for Senate Bill 217, which was passed in the in the summer of 2020. And then subsequent to that, there have been several more police reform bills, mostly led by Representative Leslie Harrod in the legislature that have tried to change various rules in terms of use of force, announcing use of force before they do it, body-worn cameras being required, being able to sue officers um, directly. Um, There's some liability that they have um, individually for wrongful death incidents. And any sort of incident doesn't have to be, someone doesn't have to die. So I want to I want to flip see like sort of the, the flip to the other side of this situation with police reform, which is the fact that it's getting harder to hire officers. I know that you've you've covered this as well. Like it's just getting harder to even get people on the force. Does something like this situation factor into that bigger picture problem with there's just not an in some folks eyes, there's just not enough police? Yeah, I mean, you know, they suffered a, a pretty big public relations blow in the summer of 2020. And I I spoke to tons of officers about what that did to them, you know, and I understand that that'd be like a journalist going out and lying and doing something really horrific in Texas, and then everybody hating me for that. It's like, well, I, you know, I, I that doesn't that it marks the whole profession. And there are lots and lots of law enforcement officers who are working super hard every day for not a ton of pay. And they put themselves on the line I mean, who else is out at two in the morning going to an apartment, a dangerous apartment, you know, call in Aurora, somebody may have a gun, a domestic violence call, or maybe children involved. Like those are really, really tough calls and they're doing that all the time. So, you know, I, I see why I've been out on so many ride-alongs and I, I have a great deal of respect for law enforcement after seeing what they have to do. That said, I also have a very strong feeling that we have to hold them to a very high standard because they can ruin someone's life in five minutes. Well, Allison Sherry, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Bree. I really hope um, you have a great day and I hope this works out. I hope it all can, you can edit it down and it sounds coherent. (laughs) And here's what else Denverites are talking about. Denver's own co-responder program is back in the news. It turns out that the program isn't being funded quite as well as we thought. 
Denverite reports that Denver Police and the Department of Public Safety mismanaged more than $400,000 meant to support the STAR program, according to a new report from the city auditor. Public safety officials responded by saying that the auditor's report didn't take into account understaffing due to the pandemic. But the city auditor also found that the police used grant dollars for stuff they weren't supposed to, like travel and rent. Hmm. And finally, some bad news for music fans. According to Westward, the live music venue number 38 is on the verge of losing its liquor and cabaret licenses over noise complaints from neighbors in Rhino. The noise issue has dogged the venue since it opened in October 2020, with neighbors even bringing in a hotshot lawyer to help force a quiet resolution. Now, the venue's owners are set for a hearing with the Department of Excise and Licenses on October 14th, where the fate of their business will be decided. And you know I have a spicy take on anything involving music venues in that area people call Rhino, so stay tuned. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell City Auditor Tim O'Brien about us? Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye-bye. I, yeah, I've had the, the best Frito pie I've ever had in my entire life was in Albuquerque. And it was homemade. So I can never get it ever again. Okay.